0: Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, January 19th. This is peak seasonal affective disorder time in our family. I'm made for mid-January, but not everyone is. Valentine's Day can't come soon enough. Something else that can't come soon enough is healthcare interoperability, something healthcare consumers have wanted for many, many seasons. But there were a few rays of interoperability sunshine over the past few weeks, and that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. To tell us how sunny it's going to get and when are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. But before we say hello to Dave and Julie, I wanted to say hello to the sponsor of the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Infor. By connecting the business and mission sides of healthcare, institutions can enhance staff experience and simplify patient interactions. With data-driven insights and greater operational control, our sponsor, Infor, supports your company in making healthcare a calling again for your staff. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Dave?
1: Dave I love that you're made for mid-January not exactly sure what that means but it does give me visions of you ice fishing on a frozen lake with a bottle of brandy just saying but anyway back to me I just learned that the world's oldest person died this week at the age of 118 and I'm wondering what the hell I'm going to be doing with myself if I ever live to be that old maybe I'll go ice fishing
0: well, your image of me is in the ballpark, and Dave, uh, you'll still be doing this podcast. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, there we are. Yeah. But you'll we'll still be talking harder.
1: about interoperability. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's classic. Julie, how are you doing?
2: Well, I'm a little under the weather from whenever I caught a J.P. Morgan. Thanks so much, J.P.M. And I'm still crying over my Miami Dolphins in that horrendous playoff game. Sad.
0: You know, they should have won. They really yeah. should have won. No kidding. But
2: uh classic dolphins.
0: Yeah. yeah. Good sign for the future though. Oh, come on. They they kept
1: having to call timeouts because they couldn't get the playoff on time. Not very Good. organized. Oh, yeah. I, know.
2: Uh, I don't need to hear it. I big got it.
1: talk from a Vikings fan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it turns out you actually have to play defense to win a playoff game. Who knew?
2: Who knew?
0: All three of us are suffering. There's always next next year, right? Now, before we talk about interoperability, let me ask you about your experiences with seasonal affective disorder. Uh, Dave, do you or anyone you know get the blues in January? Not really, although I do have a funny
1: story. Uh, very early in my career, I had a chance to be the director of the City of Seattle's Office of Management and Budget. My wife, Terry, wasn't exactly thrilled at the prospect of moving to Seattle. So among the many arguments against that move was that she was sure she would suffer from sad if we lived there. I didn't take the job, dot, dot, dot.
0: (laughs) Another good decision. Thanks, Dave. Julie, are are you or anyone you know using uh, light therapy to make it through the winter?
2: Well, Dave, since I do live in Seattle, I use my light therapy lamp at my desk every day from October to April, like without fail. And I don't know if it works, but I don't know. still feel pretty happy. (laughs) That's
0: (laughs) that's great. How often do you have to change the bulb?
2: You know, it's one of these LED ones. So it kind of goes on forever and it has a little timer. It's actually very useful for Zoom because then you have another light.
0: Uh, I'm going to steal that idea. Thanks, Julie. It's good. 40% of our five-person household gets it. I won't say which 40%. I think streaming services have replaced light therapy as our intervention of choice. All the services work on our smart TVs, regardless of brand, as long as we have the right login and password. I wish I could say the same thing for EHR systems and other health IT systems and digital health technology. And there's your segue if you weren't paying attention. Let me briefly get you caught up on a few recent interoperability items. First, a company called Health Gorilla released its first state of interoperability report. The report is based on a survey of 40 CIOs and CMIOs at 50 health systems. Fifty five percent said their health systems expect to spend as much as 20 percent more on interoperability initiatives this year compared with last year. But only 58 percent said they support broad and open health information sharing. The rest said they'll only do it on request or do the minimum to comply with the law. Second, the ONC proposed adding 20 new data elements to an existing list of 92 elements that interoperable EHR systems must share. Those new data points include the name, type, and identifier of a facility that provided the service to the patient. That's basically a customer list, and now you know why vendors didn't want to share that information. And third, David Blumenthal, who used to run ONC and now runs the Commonwealth Fund, published an op-ed in the New England Journal of Medicine that went into great detail on the new interoperability regs that took effect in October. He questioned whether the new regs will have, quote, sufficient punch close quote, to overcome the market disincentives to share health information. Dave, what are your takeaways from these developments? Do they make you more or less optimistic about interoperability? And what does it all mean for the pace of market-based health reform?
1: Well, It's hard not to get discouraged. For the fun of it, I looked up antonyms for interoperability on the internet. The most accurate was incompatibility, but my favorites by far were number one and two on antonym.com. They were inability and stupidity. Can't make <laughs> this stuff up. <laughs> the healthcare industry's unwillingness to share patient data is not only stupid, it's dangerous. I once made a t-shirt for myself that read, liberated data saves lives and wore it proudly. And it does. But the opposite is also true. Trap data kills. Let me touch on the three content pieces you referenced, Dave, and we can go from there. First, the first ever health gorilla study on the state of interoperability. With the name Health gorilla, it may be their last study, but the factoid that struck me was that 42% of health systems execs said they'll only share patient information on request or do only the absolute minimum required to comply with the law. That's the playground equivalent Of the haunt i don't want to and you can't make me really is that where we are in healthcare today regarding the onc you know they're chipping away at the issue but they're swimming upstream adding the 20 data elements including facility identifiers will improve user analytics if they actually get the information in a standardized format Despite the fines, however, the government is having a very difficult time ensuring compliance with the interoperability regulations. Playground behavior evidently wins. David Blumenthal's excellent piece put his finger on the economic logic for why providers fail to share patient information. Here's what he wrote. But if providers are expected to compete, why should they share information? Patient information is a competitive asset It can help cement patient loyalty and reveal approaches to care that may confer a competitive advantage. In other words, in competitive healthcare markets, information exchange has major potential costs to providers and few obvious financial benefits. Expanding on Blumenthal's logic, we can't expect providers to go against their economic interests by sharing patient data, even if that data improves patient outcomes. You know, so much for putting patients first. So absent a heavy-handed enforcement mechanism, it's not hard to conclude. In fact, it's almost impossible not to conclude that the healthcare industry will never fully embrace data interoperability. So now what? It's time to acknowledge that truth that healthcare providers are economic animals pursuing their own interests, and let's treat them that way. Stop expecting providers and EHR vendors to deliver on the promise of full data exchange. Instead, transfer ownership of patients' health information to the patients themselves. Let them decide who does and doesn't have access to their healthcare records. I'm not sure anything else is gonna work. I'm tired of the healthcare industry mistaking articulation for accomplishment. It's time to force full data interoperability on the industry by empowering consumers to control their own health data. Reward companies that make that happen. Repeat after me, liberated data saves lives. I have it in multiple sizes and many colors. Let's get it done.
0: (laughs) That's great, Dave. Thanks. Power to the patient. Here, here. Julie, any questions for Dave?
2: So Dave, I can't applaud enough of what you just said, but labs. I'm interested in this whole data point around how labs are even farther behind. And considering hospitals actually own and run labs and their data is kind of sort of the same thing as many other pieces of clinical information, like what's going on with LabCorp in class? Why is this happening?
1: <laughs> you know, the labs need to get out of the basement and into the real world. Um, you're right, Julie. I mean, two or three percent of healthcare expenditure goes to testing, to diagnostics, and that probably derives 70, 75 percent of the decision making. So there's enormous power in that information. But my my new favorite research company, Health Gorilla, had that page on labs that's absolutely discouraging, right? Only 39% of labs share information today. 26% said data sharing was not a priority. Only 22% are evaluating ways to share diagnostic information. And 10%, I don't know who they are, believe regulations do not affect them. So they're In the relative scheme of things, more Neanderthal than the gorilla itself. They're just out of step with the times. The one shining light here is there is an organization called Lab 2.0, which recognizes this obvious reality and the potential value of the data. And they are working with labs around the country to try to inspire them to embrace value-based care and to use the data to really drive better diagnosis, better treatment protocols and so on. But what gives, I, I think it's just more of the same. I'm really to the point of saying, well, why are we even trying anymore? Let's just assume that they're not going to do it and figure out another way. I mean, that's that's kind of where I'm getting.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's turning out to be a dead end. Thanks, Dave. Julie, what are your takeaways from the survey, what the ONC did and what Blumenthal said? Does that make you more or less optimistic about interoperability? And what does it all mean for digital health and the market innovation spaces where you play?
2: Well, get your seatbelts on. Get comfy because we've got a little to say. All right. (laughs) (laughs) This might be a little known fact for our audience, but I worked on one of the early health information exchanges in Santa Barbara County, California in 1999. And although this was certainly not our stated thesis, we developed a learning laboratory that was effectively looking at whether, you know, it was possible to build some data exchange that would defy the natural laws of economics. And, you know, it was a relatively geographically closed market. What do we learn? The power of economics totally reigns. That effort, like I said, started in 1999. I mean, that was so long ago. Ended in roughly like 2002, 2003, maybe a little bit later. And since then, we've made tremendous progress in technology and a lot of standards progress but the economics is still the issue to Dave's point. So, I don't know, Berta, you're, you know, to answer your questions, like, the ONC does continue to move the ball forward, including, you know, data that gives a more holistic picture of the individual. And with this recent facility identification, you know, it does help, but it helps kind of improve the federation of information, right? And workarounds to actually get what you need if you're trying to get that information. But they're continuing way too slowly at this chipping away at the economic friction because they have the power to do it. And they're just really, you know, it's just going so slowly, but they are trying to do that. Blumenthal understands this better than almost anybody to Dave's point. And he knows that the links that providers will go to, EHR companies will go to, you know, put up fights in court, provide minimum responses. One of my favorite lines, though, of his New England Journal of Medicine paper is this, Market incentives have equally problematic implications for EHR vendors. If vendors, you could really put providers here, make it easy to move information between records, they make it easy for providers to switch from their record to a competitor's record. So I just want to like remind us all, do you remember those days when you couldn't get the contacts out of your cell phone when you bought a new cell phone without doing it manually? Do you remember that?
0: Yes, yes, Like, I do.
2: We're simply not the first industry to experience this shift towards actually having to compete on price or value or kind of the goodness of your product. So like, <laughs> get over ourselves. And lastly, I know I'm going wrong, but I am more optimistic, but not because of OMC or what Blumenthal says, but because of where the innovators are. And, you know, DataBand, for instance, is one of our companies that we've partnered with. They carved out a whole new market in the unidentified data space that's really enabled massive progress for multiple different types of organizations around the hoop in a lot of research, a lot of really kind of practical information necessary for business purposes. They're now applying that to identified data. What they're doing, though, is going after the business purposes that these organizations have, whether they're internal or cross-organization. They're not waiting they're going after the business need instead of this like massive federal, you know, forcing of unnatural economics. And class, that is all for the day.
0: You know, all this reminds me of how important a SIM card is now, <laughs> yeah. right? You can't watch a spy movie. You know, everybody's after the SIM card and no one's after the phone, right? Excellent points. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? Well, I'm.
1: she's got me going
0: back thinking about
1: how tough the early cell phone days were! Not only did you have to reload your contacts, the cell company kept your phone number. Remember oh, that? That's right. I once got into a big fight with an employer when I switched jobs because they wanted to keep my they wanted to keep my cell phone number, and I had to go threaten them, and then and I finally got it back. But uh, you know it. Yeah, that's even worse. You couldn't be more right. That patient data should be available to everybody and companies should distinguish on their ability to find insights from that data and use it for better treatments, drive better outcomes. This is really Neanderthal competition, right? It's competing by denying access to things that could make our world better. But anyway, uh, congratulations to you on Santa Barbara. I think I read recently, they have some of the highest per capita costs in the country for treatment. So clearly the HIV worked well there. Yeah. But I've always thought and get your take on this, that the ultimate solution to interoperability would be overlay software that could replicate healthcare data as it's created, push it into the cloud, clean it up, protect it, and then make it available for subsequent use and analysis sounds like a project for Google, Microsoft, or another big tech company. Am I on to anything here? Will this ever happen? And if not, what's preventing it from happening?
2: Wow, that's a big question. So first, I would say, if you think about that as one cloud, let me introduce you to privacy and security concerns and, you know, HIPAA and all sorts of regulation that would prevent that one cloud. But if you're talking about multiple clouds, like, I think Google, and Microsoft, and those companies are doing that kind of thing today within systems, right? They're just not enabling the cross-system. Yeah. So, again, it's not like your technology vision isn't there. It's just not there in a way that's actually facilitating what's needed. Yep.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, we need a universal translator, right? I think they had one in that cartoon, Kelvin and Hobbes, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> I have to look at uh... Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I just remember Pogo. We met the enemy,
1: and he is us. That's what I think of healthcare.
0: No, you know they had a tra- they had a transmogrifier, which is a whole different thing. You can go anywhere. Sorry, wrong technology. Thanks, Julie. Uh, I'm just glad I was able to connect our upstairs smart TV to a Wi-Fi a signal booster that I installed in the upstairs hallway. You know, there's seasonal affective disorder, and then there's seasonal affective disorder when Netflix goes out. Two totally different <laughs> things. Totally. <laughs> now let's briefly talk about other news that happened this past week. Uh, Julie, what else grabbed your attention this week?
2: Well, I saw that someone who I really admire and think a lot of, Will Schrank, who just left Humana a while ago, has joined Andrews and Horwitz, someone we work with on some companies. And I just want to congratulate Will. Big guy, big brain. Good to see where he's
0: going. Very cool. Congratulations. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any other news this week that caught your eye? Well, have you guys been paying attention to this new bot,
1: Chat GPT, that launched at the end of November? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so believe it or not, if you didn't see it, Chat GPT this week passed all three parts of the medical license exam. For those who don't <laughs> know, first year medical, yeah.
2: That's awesome. Yeah.
1: yeah. So first Excellent. year medical students spend hundreds of hours prepping for part one. Most don't take part three until after they graduate, in other words, when they're already doctors. And I'm wondering if this may be a Gutenberg printing press moment in human history. I tried to get on the chat GPT website to ask how generative AI would transform medicine, but the site has been overrun by all those college students getting the bot to write their essays and term papers. So maybe next week. Yet we can't do data interoperability in healthcare. Come on, come on. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Maybe we should feed that into that exactly. technology. That's right? a good exactly. idea. There, we, we solved the whole thing in 20 minutes. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, Julie. And thanks to our sponsor, Infor. Infor connects the business and mission sides of healthcare, enhancing the staff experience and simplifying patient interactions with data driven insights and greater operational control. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.